Hi folks, Jack Spierko here. Today you are listening to an episode of TSP Rewind. <laughs> Commercial-free versions of past episodes. Podcast blasts from the past. I put these up when I can't do a show due to professional commitments or rare vacations. These podcasts will appear in standard iTunes, Stitcher, and other feeds, but will be titled TSP Rewind Episodes and numbered accordingly. Today we are rewinding back to... April 22nd, 2009, episode 185, Survival Lessons from the Aguan River Valley. I chose this episode for this week's podcast because I thought it made a good bridge between the very early shows that I played Monday and Tuesday and the shows that will finish this week that wrap up the first year of the show. Because it marks a turning point in my life, much as these shows mark turning points in the show life cycle itself. I won't go too deep into new content today because the episode really covers uh, everything that, that was really important to me that came away uh, from the experience with me. But this talks about, you know, we say we're rewinding back to 2009. We're actually rewinding back in some ways to 1991 and 1992. I took part in something called Operation Fortis Caminos as part of a detachment to the 536 Combat Engineers. From December 91 to June of 92, we worked to carve 10 miles of road into the Honduran interior in one of the harshest environments in the world. While there, I learned a lot about life, survival, and I learned that which seems so desolate and harsh can show you some of the most beautiful things the world has to offer. It also made an impact on me. If you think about my age and you go back to that time, you can work out pretty quick. I was about 19. And uh, by the time I came back from there, I was just about to turn 20. And a man, if he's going to grow at all, grows a lot in those years between the total years I served was 17 to 21. And you grow a lot from 17 to 21, especially when you're part of something like the military and you're on multiple deployments in third world countries. And I've talked before on the show about how when I when I got home, And I came back, and I had this this feeling of obligation to hang out with friends and talk to family members who, you know, I, I hadn't seen in years. I'd been on leave once or twice for like a week over those years. And uh, I didn't fit in. It didn't work for me anymore. I would sit down with some friends uh, out at an old drinking hole where we used to go drink when we were in high school and we weren't supposed to, and... You know, just sit out and hang out, and I'd listen to them just talk about things that I thought was pointless bullshit at this point in my life. They were still talking about high school. You know, been out of high school four years, and you're still bitching about somebody from high school. I, so I remember one night, I, I took a couple beers, and I walked away from the group, not even out of eyesight, but just out of earshot. Sat on a rock and looked over the water and had a beer and a half and came back with my half a beer. Spent the rest of the night hanging out with everybody, and you would have thought that I'd done something horrible. Everybody was constantly asking me the question, what's wrong with you? Why have you changed? Why are you so different? And I wasn't a combat soldier. I wasn't involved in direct combat ever throughout my time in the military. Um, I was deployed to combat zones, but I wasn't a combat troop, so I wasn't that. What it was was growing up faster than the people around you and, and realizing there was something more. And this six-month period did more of that than I think anything else. Because what we were doing was meaningful. We were isolated enough that we, we formed bonds and friendships beyond what even soldiers normally do. 
And I saw people living at the, the true edge of survivable poverty. People who, if they had any less, wouldn't be able to make it. And I realized that what we call poor in the United States is rich for the rest of the world. And it changed everything. And it made it more so that when I came home, I didn't fit in. And it led me to my walk from Pennsylvania to New Hampshire on about a third of the Appalachian Trail. It all goes back to this time. And when I came back from that walk, I realized there was nothing for me in that small coal town anymore. I packed up my $400 Mustang II car with everything that I owned at the time, and I drove to Texas to spend, to spend some time with a guy that I would, I'd served with in the military. And I spent six months sleeping on the floor of his one-bedroom apartment, paying half his bills for the privilege of doing that, further finding myself and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. And this all ties together. And all of the things that you know that you've learned from over the years of listening to this show goes back to this genesis. I hope you enjoy it today. With that, again, we're rewinding back to April 22nd, 2009, episode 185, Survival Lessons from the Aguan River Valley. And while these Rewind uh, episodes are commercial-free, remember you can always support our work by going to tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z, dot com whenever you're going to shop on Amazon and shopping through our links there. Another day, another dollar Makes you wonder where your money went Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world and the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always on my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Uh, this is episode, I believe, 185 of the Survival Podcast. I'm recording this podcast on April 22nd, 2009, so if you had to be listening to it in the future, and some of the things don't seem timely, well, that's because I recorded it on April 22nd, not whenever you're listening to it. And as always, I'd like to welcome everybody and say it thrills me to be able to share my morning drive and whatever it is that you do when you listen to my show. I'd like to remind you that you are welcome to disagree with me. I'm the host of the show. The show is really yours. It's been fan-directed almost since from day one with suggestions for topics and things that people want to know and questions and, and all other types of feedback. Disagreements are fine. I want to talk real briefly before I even do house cleaning today about a disagreement that I had yesterday, though, with someone. Someone came on the blog yesterday and posted and said that I have turned the survival podcast into nothing but a quest for a quick buck. That bugged me. They also inferred that I don't care about my audience. That pissed me off. Literally had blood ready to come shooting from my eyes, I was so angry. So I retaliated in the comments section. If you look at episode from yesterday's uh, individual show notes, you'll see the huge comment thread that it, that it sprung off there. And then something else happened. My listeners, you guys, came in and just thronged this person. Just beat them about the head in the show. I mean, way tougher on them than I was. And someone asked in the moderator's forum on the forum, Jack, how does it feel? I think Patriot asked me that. And I said, it's absolutely humbling. So 
to those of you that realize that I care about you, and those of you who have, when somebody has you know, come at me, had my back and had my six, let me say thank you. And to everybody that listens, uh, whether you're you know, a supporting member or not, let me say thank you for listening, thank you for sharing my show. This show is about you, and I do it because I care about you deeply, and I care about my country deeply, and I want to see as, as few people affected by disaster adversely as possible. I want people to be ready. I want people to be prepared. And I've done everything I can, including put a profit in the show so that I can dedicate my life to this. And I'll let you disagree with me with just about anything, but you tell me I don't care about the people that I put this show out for, and you're putting yourself on the fighting side of me, and that's where you don't want to be. And I just wanted to be clear about that. Moving on, what is today's show about? Today's show is called Lessons from the Agwan River Valley. Now, Agwan River Valley, that sounds beautiful and romantic, doesn't it? What is the Agwan River Valley? The Agwan River Valley is in the middle of a dusty pit of mountains in the middle of Honduras. It's where I spent about half of the year that I was 19 years of age while I was in the United States Army. Uh, serving there is a heavy wheel vehicle mechanic working on large uh, diesel trucks, diesel truck tractors, forklifts, things like that, uh, bulldozers, you name it. If it was used to build roads and it was huge, I worked on it. Hammets, you know, and everything down to the size of Humvees. I worked on everything that they, they broke, and the engineers broke a lot of things while I was there. The Agwan River Valley is one of the most harsh, terrible, dirty, dusty hellholes on the planet, and at the same time, one of the most beautiful places I've ever stood on this earth, and where I really came to understand how special life is and how special our world is. And how can something be like that? I'll give you a little bit of a description of what this place was like. The soil was largely from the results of ancient volcanoes. It was a very dry place, and uh, once we got past the rain toward the, the January time, it was supposed to be dry already, and it still rained, so we had to deal with the rain when we got there. Um, this this topsoil was like talcum powder. And when people walked around, if you've ever seen Charlie Brown and Pigpen and the little kid that never takes a bath and a little dust cloud goes around everywhere he goes, everybody was Pigpen in Honduras. Every place you saw a person walking, unless the ground was wet, you saw this little cloud of dust. You, you, you would go take a shower at a shower point, which was like this big plywood building with a bunch of pipes running across the type and a bunch of valves, right? And, you know, 50 guys taking a shower, shoulder to shower shoulder, basically, with all these little valves, and uh, you'd open the valve, take your shower, you'd get all clean, and you would walk from the shower point back to your tent, and I was lucky, I was close to the shower point, it was probably a, oh, 40-yard walk for me, from the, the entrance of the shower point to the entrance of my tent, you'd sit down in the tent, and take like a white handkerchief or a tissue or something, and wipe your forehead, and you would wipe black dust off your forehead seconds after getting out of the shower, maybe a minute at max from getting out of the shower, you'd already have a layer of dirt on your head. Doesn't sound like the greatest place. It was full of scorpions, centipedes, venomous snakes, venomous spiders, brown recluse. There were more brown recluse than you can imagine. And there were ticks 
everywhere. Each day we would have to stop and, you know, kind of check your buddy, like his head and stuff, to make sure that, you know, your friend didn't have ticks in him. So we could pick ticks off each other. We looked like monkeys. And that got better over time as we cleared out all the brush and, and things like that. We were there six months, and this was really the way it was when we first got there. Some of these things never changed. Some of these things got better. The ticks were one of them. There weren't really many mosquitoes up in the high hills of the Agawam River Valley. It was uh, it wasn't really bad from that respect, and that was one blessing. Uh, when we deployed out of there and we spent three days at the place called the Gulf of the Mosquitoes, different story. So we're up in this place, and what were we doing there? Well, we were miles from any pavement. Uh, I think we were about 10 miles from a, uh, a National Guard camp that I can't remember the name of. And we were in a camp that we called Makora. And it was a tent city. There were about 500 uh, men and women in service there. Once we got everything set up and brought people in, I went in the advance party. When we got there, there was nothing. Absolutely nothing. And our purpose was to take what was basically a dirt trail that was hard to get a motorcycle through and make it so that it was a good road between Camp Macora and this National Guard camp 10 miles away. About 10 miles to the north of the National Guard camp, you actually got back to pavement. And I'll try to, on Google Maps, create an image for you guys today and give you an idea of where we were in this Agawan River Valley to, to give you a sense of, of how remote this place was. So it doesn't sound like a lot to be excited about. You know, not a place that you would book your family vacation. So where'd the beauty come from? Well, the mountains were huge. They, they, they rose way up into the sky, and every morning when you'd get up, you'd look around, and the peaks around you would literally be wrapped in the clouds. And we were high enough up, sometimes you would look down to the valley below, and you would be looking down at the tops of the clouds. It's pretty awe-inspiring. It, it, it makes you stop and think about how little you are. The other thing was the nights, especially once the dry season came. Once the dry season came and the air was clear and there was no humidity and up on those mountains that high up and that far from anything, I mean, there was nothing. We had each had a, a single or two light bulbs in our tents. That was our lighting. And they were inside these tents, so they really didn't light the grounds up much. And if you just walked to the edge of the encampment where the Constantina wire was, it was as much to keep us in as to keep people from stealing out. And looked up at the sky, you saw stars like I've never seen anywhere else in the world. And I understood why some of the ancients came up with the stories and the astrology myths that they came up with. Because it was absolutely awe-inspiring. And folks, I've been to some remote areas in the United States. I've been to the desert southwest. Heck, where I grew up in Pennsylvania, we used to sit on the roof in the summertime. Uh, especially once I turned 18 and was allowed to have a beer or two without having to hide. And sit back there and just look at the skies. And it was beautiful. But it was nothing like this place in Honduras where there was really no real sources of light. It looked like you could literally reach up and touch some of the stars. And it was that mix of, of, of you know, really just nastiness and beauty 
that at the age of 19 changed me, honestly, forever. I was asked one time about the people that lived there, and this is the way that I put it. And this is, this is something that I go back to whenever I think I've got it rough here in the United States. And then I realize I do have it rough here in the United States. And that is, the people in this Agwan River Valley have absolutely nothing. And at the same time, they have absolutely everything. Because they had complete and total freedom. No one told them, you can't go here, you can't go there. That's private property. Most of these people had kind of a a mixed lineage. They were from bloodlines from uh, the, the ancient Hispanic explorers, the Spanish explorers, and the native Indian tribes. And they were still living, by and large, like native Indians. All right, or Native Americans, however you want to put it in your politically correct hat. They lived largely on tortillas, corn, rice, and beans. And what they could do with that was pretty impressive. And I learned that, you know what, you can enjoy rice and beans. And that's why today as a prepper, I don't have that big of a problem eating it. I also learned that probably the best animal to have for livestock for everything that you could want from producing food to producing waste that can be used to grow more food is the chicken. That was the one animal. There was there was some cattle here and there, and they were owned by what were to be considered the wealthy people. And we would have looked at these wealthy people and called them abject poverty, absolutely abject poverty. Our our, our worst welfare recipient lives a thousand times better than this these wealthy people of the Aguan River Valley. They had some cattle and they had some goats. But what most families would have were some chickens in their little adobe houses, and they have their little chickens running around. And there was this uh, this piece of the river that cut through the road about halfway between Macora and uh, this National Guard camp. And occasionally I would get the opportunity to go up to the National Guard camp where we would stock up on beer because they only let us buy two beers a day apiece at our little PX down in uh, in Macora. And whenever you went up there, people would give you money and you'd, you'd basically bootleg beer back into the camp, a couple cases here, a couple cases there. But we would always stop at this river crossing where this, this family had this little house right on the river. And they had one of those brick earth and mud ovens and this lady would make a plate of food for you for two dollars that you can't buy in any restaurant anywhere and it would consist of chicken and some sort of a spanish rice that she made that was you know obviously it wasn't from ziploc bags or uh you know mylar or tear open containers or anything like that i don't know exactly how she made it but it was amazing and she would fry Plantains, and in those who don't know what a plantain is, it looks like a green banana, but you would never eat it raw. These are something you cook. But I've had plantains made a variety of ways. This lady, out in the middle of nowhere, fried these things in a way that made a potato, a fried potato, taste like crap. These were amazing. And they tasted almost like a French fried potato, but better. They were thick, puffy. They didn't rupture like most of the ones did. I don't know how she did it. But she had no idea how valuable that was to us because she only charges two bucks for it. And we had no idea how valuable two dollars, American dollars, was to those people there. To them at the time, I believe it was about 20 lempira, which was their currency. And a lempira was, well, it was worth about what a dollar was in their economy, a dollar back in the States. 
for everything except consumer goods that had to be brought into the country. Any kind of day-to-day locally produced goods, it was about a dollar dollar per lempira exchange uh, between the two economies. So basically, as far as she was concerned, she was getting 20 bucks to make us a plate of chicken rice and plantains, and we probably would have paid $20 for it. That's how good it was. So I learned that even in the most simple of places, that the, the, the ingenuity of the human being allows for the production of things that are absolutely phenomenal. Some of the other lessons that I learned, I learned that life is precious. And I learned that our soldiers are in harm's way even when they're not in combat. There was no combat in the Agwan River Valley. None of us were out in, you know, rice paddies like the Vietnam stories in movies. We had one farmer or a couple farmers got pissed off one time and took some shots at us from the road and nobody got hurt and we went and talked to their kind of village leader and found the farmer and instead of arresting him they basically made peace and bought them off they apparently were upset that some of the land that we were occupying used to be theirs and didn't get that they were going to have it given back to them uh, when we left and we were only there to build the road and they were pretty upset about that and uh, even though they shot at American troops uh, nobody did anything to them we actually made peace with them but there was no combat there and uh you think there's no real danger there. Well, I told this story on the Veterans Day show, and I won't tell it as long, but I got a truck brought to me one day that was absolutely, totally destroyed. And I was asked to do what's called a COD, or cost of damage report on it, Charlie Oscar Delta. And uh, basically a COD is to determine, does the vehicle stay here and do we try to fix it? Does it get sent back to be repaired by a a fourth-level shop, because we're a third-level shop in the field? Or do we just send this thing to the graveyard because it's going to cost more to fix it than it's actually going to cost to simply replace it? So... More efficiency maybe in cost analysis in the military than people realize. So as I'm doing the COD on this thing, I finally asked the question, hey, what, what happened to this? And what had happened is a guy driving it over a part of the road that wasn't quite finished yet, trying to get a, a load of gravel to another uh, job site, had the, the road basically give out and it flipped end over end over end down into this valley. And uh, they pulled it out of the valley and they... they put it on a flatbed and they drug it up to me to, to decide whether or not we were going to you know, keep it or get rid of it. And I ended up saying it's not worth anything. But if you can imagine the old style dump trucks where the dump bed has like a lip and that lip goes over the cab of the pickup truck. That lip had been driven down to where there was maybe six inches between the top of the roof and the, and the seat that the driver would have been in. Apparently, he managed to wedge himself as best he could down into the floor of the truck as this occurred, whether it was intentional or by accident, I don't know, but he ended up down there. He ended up with his chest crushed. He was never going to walk again. His pelvis was, was broken in multiple places. His spine was fractured in multiple places. He'll probably never walk again. And I don't know the man's name, and I, I, I couldn't tell you what he looked like, and I don't know where he is today, and I don't know what happened to him, but I've never forgotten him. And it's taught me that when I see a fellow soldier, a brother soldier, sailor, airman, marine on the street, that I go up to him and I say thank you. And if they tell me I, I was never anywhere dangerous, I say, yeah, you were. You just didn't know it. And that's why they recruit you when you're 17 years old. And i got to tell you, 
Um, occasionally people come up to me and they'll maybe see me in my hat that says Army on it or something like that, and they say thank you to me. And I want to explain to you, if you're not a member of the military, the reaction that you get. Every single time you'll do that, the, uh, the person will look you in the eye, and they'll quickly turn away, and they'll say thank you back, and they'll be very, very humble. And what you'll think to yourself is, I don't really know what I just saw there, but if you've ever served, you know what it is. That guy could be the winner of a purple heart. He could have won a bronze star. He could have been out in the real thick of things, a battlefield, or he could just be an old mechanic like me. It doesn't matter, no matter who he is, no matter what he did. He, he knows in his heart somewhere there's someone that did more. For me, it's a real easy thing to think about people that did more. And you might think for that, that real battle-scarred soldier, the guy that maybe even lost a leg, you might think that it's a big leap for him to think about somebody that did more. But there's probably somebody he left behind, and that's who he wishes you were thanking. Or maybe their widow. Or maybe their widow or their husband. Because we have women lost in combat now. And I learned how dangerous it is to be a soldier even when people aren't taking shots at you. That the work that they do is dangerous and it's noble. That's what the Aquan River Valley taught me. I also learned that our freedom is more precious than we know in this country. Deployed with us in the middle of the Aguan River Valley in Kamakura were 100 men from the Honduran Army. 100 men. When I say men, I laugh. Because as young as we were, and we were young, I joined the Army at 17, I was 19 at this point. I was serving along soldiers, men that were 18, 19, 20, 21 years old. 25 was an old man. First sergeant, our first sergeant was 31, in charge of an entire company of men, 31 years of age. But these these men from the Honduran infantry, they were sent there to provide guard duty for the camp. Since we were only going to be there six months, or as long as it took to finish the job, as we were often told. And we needed to keep working, you know, seven days a week, nonstop. Having our men off pulling guard duty would have took away from what we were doing. And we didn't send infantry. We sent engineers. We sent mechanics. We sent cooks. We sent water purification specialists. We sent logistical people. We sent people to do the job. And the job was build a road between here and there and get it done quickly. Put culverts in so the road doesn't wash away because you're making a dam in between this this valley where this river crosses multiple times and these feeder streams cross. That's your job. Do it. So they brought these men in. Men? Average age, I would say, was about 16 years old. 16-year-old kids walking around with 180 rounds, an old M16A1 fully automatic Vietnam-era M16s that we had given them. And I don't mean we as in my company. I mean the United States government had given to the Honduran government to arm their troops with our old Vietnam-era M16s. And you see these kids walking around, and you'd learn enough Spanish to talk to them, and you'd find out almost the same story from every one of them. How did you end up in the Army? And I'll tell it to you in American language, you know, English instead of the Spanish with mixing stuff in it. But it would always come down to one night I was out with my friends at a disco or a club. And we were dancing. And that's a big thing in the cities of Honduras. And that's where most of these kids came from were the Honduran cities. 
and and they don't have drinking ages, or at least they didn't at the time. And you know, by the time you're 16, you're out chasing girls and hanging out with your friends and doing the things that teenagers do, and you're going out to these clubs. And they're out in the club and they're dancing, and you know, they say "falar," you know, dancing. And all of a sudden, military truck would roll up outside. They'd open the back end. A couple guys would get out. They'd come in with their M16s. They would line everybody up. Girls go that way. You don't have to be worried about this. Boys get in line. And they would start putting boys into the truck. And they would say, you are now beginning your two years of compulsory military service. This was not thuggery. This is legal to do in the nation, at least in 1991 it was. I don't know what Honduras does today to, to put people in their military. It may not be much different. Basically, they were just being conscripted. And you get a chance to you know, write a letter to your parents and let them know what happened to you. And some of your friends would probably go tell them anyway. They would know because it would be big news that you know, another, another group of kids have been lined up and sent off to serve. And you'd be trained, and they'd give you a uniform, and they'd give you a place to sleep, and then you'd be given a mission, and you'd be sent out to do it. And you'd serve for two years. At the end of those two years, they gave you a card, a Tarata. And your Tarata would say, hey, you've served your two years of compulsory service. You better not lose it, because if they ever did this again, and you happen to be one of the people picked up, you didn't have your Tarata on you, you're back in the Army again. And I met this one guy, and I looked at him, and he was about 22, 23 years old, and he was a private. I, you know, did they just get you? He says, no, he used to be a sergeant. He was on an airfield, and uh, he made a mistake, and he shot someone that he shouldn't have shot. When he shot this person, he killed them. And it was a mistake, and it was his error. They didn't throw him in jail. They demoted him to private, and they added two years of service to his term and made him ineligible for promotion. A very different world, a very different place. And I don't think that we understand how valuable the freedom that we take for granted in this nation is. And I learned that in the Aguan River Valley. The Army's big on the words, improvise, adapt, overcome. Key to improvise. Whenever you're in a situation, you're going to figure out how to make the situation better by improvising. I never really knew what improvising was until I got to Honduras. Every scrap of wood that was left over by the engineers that were building our little buildings and our platforms for our tents to be built on, at least, you know, our, we lived in a tent. We didn't have a third floor, though. They built us these little, like, stages, and we'd put the tents on the stage so it would plywood floor. We, every little scrap would be gathered up. Whatever we could use, we'd use. Whatever we couldn't use, we'd give to the natives around us, the people around us. They were always so grateful for it. But we built everything for ourselves because there was nothing there. I built myself a little table that I would keep in front of my cot so that I could eat my food on it or put a drink on it or things like that. A friend of mine and I decided that we weren't really happy with the workouts that we were getting there because all we would do is do our push-ups, our sit-ups, and our running. And uh, we were pretty short, and we had decided that since we were in this harsh environment and we didn't have anything else to do, that we should come back in better shape than we'd ever been in our lives. So we took a cutting torch and some plate steel, and we cut out 
uh, using a trash can top and bottom as an outline maker, uh, plates for a barbell. We took a pipe, we put a piece of rod inside it, we welded up the ends, put a couple big one-and-a-half-inch uh, lug nuts for a hammock on it, welded those in place to make collars, and we built a barbell set. And we took plywood and we built a bench. Then we even figured out how to make the bench do inclines and declines. And then because every once in a while one of us would be off on a mission and not there to spot for the other, we figured out how to build something that would hold the bars uh, like is on a typical weightlifting bench. We built pull-up bars and we built sit-up things around them. I have pictures of all this stuff. One day maybe I'll scan them and put them together in a slideshow for you all so you can get a real feel for what this place was like. But that was just what two guys did. There was improvising done everywhere. (laughs) Improvisation was the word I was looking for there. But it was everywhere. And it it wasn't like everybody did the same thing. It was everybody did what they wanted to do to give themselves what they were missing. They adapted to the situation for themselves. But the real improvisation was from the people. When we started to tear the camp down, we gave them everything, and they lined up to get it. One day I was carrying a large box, an MRE case box. And uh, MREs, for those that don't know, are meals ready to eat. They're Army uh, rations. And we ate those for lunch every single day of that six months. We had hot chow for breakfast and dinner, but we ate MREs for lunch. Well, I had this huge MRE case box. And this lady was screaming to me, Migo, 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 you know, for basically for Amigo, you know, friend. Venica, Venica, come over here, you know. And I'm like, Estafacante, Estafacante, which means it's empty. She goes, no problemo, no problemo, quiero caja, I want the box. I gave her the box, she started, like she beamed, she was so happy. Big heavy gauge cardboard box, I handed it to her, she was so overjoyed with it. I don't have any idea what the hell she wanted it for, but I bet she did something good with it. And that's something that most people in America would just consider garbage. I have one piece of PVC pipe that we were carrying. Somebody wanted it. One inch diameter white PVC pipe, eight foot long. I gotta believe that's pretty useless uh, in most situations for plumbing because unless you have a couple more of them, you're not going anywhere with the water. But the man that I handed it to was overjoyed that he had this eight foot stick of pipe. Now, even in Lempiras, it wasn't a very valuable thing from the cost aspect. But there wasn't a Home Depot around the corner to go get it. And this is the big thing for survivalists that I learned. The human being is more adaptable than we're given credit for. These people had an entire society, largely without electricity. There might have been ten refrigerators in the entire valley. And the ones that were there ran on propane, and they required somebody to go fill tanks you know, once a month to keep them going. But they shared that capacity with each other. There was no electric ranges or gas stoves. They cooked in earthen ovens. They cooked over open fires. The children ran around in second and third-hand clothing, a lot of it torn and worn down. But they played, and they were happy, just like kids in America. In fact, in some ways, I think they were happier. They were definitely tougher. I tried to teach my son to defend himself from a young age, but at the age of eight, I wouldn't have wanted to put him up against any of the eight-year-olds from that place, even though most of them were probably smaller in stature. They were tough kids. They walked around, and at their feet were piles of burrow shit, burrow crap, burrow manure, donkey 
do, however you want to say it. It was everywhere because there were donkeys. That was the other thing that a lot of people had were donkeys. They were all over the place. And they did what they do, and they did it all over the place. And they walked through these dirt streets with piles of donkey crap laying around. I mean, it seemed like a terrible life, but they played with each other and they had fun. I learned that we can always learn something from another person. Whether we are from, you know, America or from a small place like Macora, Honduras. In Macora, there was this dog. And this dog looked like he was on his last legs. He looked like he was going to die. He was mangy. He walked slow. But he followed this group of people that came to the camp every day. And they, they hated this dog. The children tormented this dog. And I felt so bad for this dog. And we used to give these people a little bit of food and a little bit of stuff whenever we could. And one day I snapped out on them and I said, And the next time one of you does anything to this dog in front of me, you'll get nothing from me or any of these other soldiers ever again. I don't care if you're nice to the dog, but you leave them alone. And they did. And I started bringing the dog leftovers from breakfast. I'd go get a, you know, a ladle full of eggs. And I think these people hated this dog because he was getting a ladle full of eggs. You know, and they were fighting over some you know, accessory packets from an MRE. But I fed this dog every day that he showed up with these people, and I petted him and I talked to him. And then one day a little kid said to me that the reason that they, they, they bothered the dog is because he was infirma, which means sick. And what I said to this boy was, Cuando tú estás enfermo, las personas no moleste tú, tu madre, tu madre cuida para ti. When you're sick, the people don't bother you. Your mother cares for you. And the ladies that were with this group, all of their eyes lit up. And for the first time, I think they understood what I was doing with this animal. And they started petting the dog and teaching the children to be nice to the dog. After about four or five weeks, this mangy, deprived dog turned into an active, happy dog that was again growing his hair. And these kids ended up deciding that they really liked the dog. And he became their friend. And they took care of him, even after we left. I'm sure of that, based on the way that I saw these children treating this dog as he got better. And they learned that the way that things look is not the way that they always are. And i got to tell you, I didn't know I was teaching them that. I had no idea that's what I was doing. All I thought I was doing was taking care of a poor sick dog because that's what I was taught to do when I was a kid. When something's hurt, you do what you can to save it. You know, we might be hunters, but, you know, when I was a kid, we had this little squirrel that we found that lost its mother. We took care of it. And people would say, well, how, how can you take care of something like that, but you'll go out and shoot it? Hey, when something's helpless, you take care of it. That's all I was doing. But I taught those kids that lesson. And I learned the same exact thing from them. And this to me, folks, this to me is why I do this show. Because I'll say something someday on this show. And I won't even realize what I've said. I'll say it in anger. I'll say it in passion. I'll say it in sympathy. And it'll seem like a non-event to me. And four days later, I'll get an email from one of you. And you'll tell me what it meant to you. I learned that in Honduras at 19. But I didn't figure it out until many, many years later. And that's the biggest lesson that I have for you today. 
as you walk through life, as you prep, as you take care of your family, as you try to be a good citizen, as you try to be a good neighbor, as you try to be a good American, as you try to make sure that you're prepared for whatever comes in life, realize that there are lessons in your past that you have yet to learn. That on a daily basis, you should take just a moment to pause and think. Think about your own past. Relive your memories. And look for the lessons that you've learned that you don't know. Look for the lessons that you've learned that you're even acting on. But you don't know why you think that way. Because it will give you more power, more ability, and more passion. What does this have to do with survivalism? Passionate people survive. Passionate people lay down their lives for their brethren. Passionate people that know why they believe what they believe, no matter what it is, will do whatever it takes to take care of themselves and those around them because they know what they do matters. People without passion are the ones that end up on rooftops waiting for someone to save them. And what I can tell you about these poor, impoverished people in the Aguan River Valley, none of them, if that valley ever floods, would have ended up on a freaking rooftop waiting for someone to come save them because they would know no one is coming to save them. They would have taken action. They would have said, we don't have a car. They would have walked the way they walked everywhere that they went. They would have known what to do and they probably had to do it before. And they're not superhuman. Some of them would have died and they would have accepted that that's the reality of life and they would have went on with life. Those people, I will say it again, had absolutely nothing as we define having things in this nation. And at the same time, they had everything. Because in their minds, in their hearts, they knew what it was to be free, They knew what it was to have liberty. They knew what it was to have self-direction in their lives. And they knew what it was to be in control of their own life. And to realize that they could do whatever they want. And I ask them at times, why don't you leave? Why don't you go to the city like so many others have? And they all responded with the same thing. I don't want to. I don't want to. And in America, I hope that we start using those words less to talk about what we don't want to do at work and more about what we don't want to do in our lives. Because if you want to build lifestyles that are sustainable, that will help you live the life you want, whether times get tough or even if they don't, you have to start asking yourself, what do I not want to do? And then don't do it. That's as simple as it was for these people. And you might say, but our lives are more complicated only because we choose complication. Only because we choose difficulty. Only because we choose perceived comfort in exchange for actual liberty. If we could take the capabilities, the things, the knowledge, the stuff that we have in America, and we could learn from a primitive people like those people that live there, and there's thousands of these societies left in the world, if we don't keep trying to squish them out and uh, and make them assimilate, they'll always be there. And if we could take that spirit and that knowledge and marry it with what we have here, we might just put this country back to what it was intended to be. 
That has everything to do with survivalism. Because, folks, for me, survivalism is not just for me and you to survive, not just for our families to survive, not just for our family units to survive, but it's the very survival of our way of life and the liberty that we have come to know in America. I hope that my little trip back to 1991 today has helped you understand how valuable what we have here is. And I hope it helps you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Well, you can scream and you can holler. It really doesn't matter because it all gets spent.